Well, good morning. How blessed we are to gather together as one voice, one body, and sing praises to our God. Amen? Amen. And thanks to all who serve on our uh, worship team. It's easy to take them for granted as we see them leading uh, us each Sunday, week after week. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133? Psalm 133, almost in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 133. As you know, we're doing summer in the Psalms. The word psalms comes from a Greek word, which means the plucking of strings. And these are songs to be sung originally by Israel to that of a plucked or stringed instrument, such as a harp. And when you get there, you will see the psalm is labeled in, I believe in most translations, as a song of ascents. A song of ascent. Psalm 133 is one of 15 short psalms purposely grouped together, coming immediately after the longest uh, psalm in the Psalter. That would be Psalm 119, also the longest uh, chapter in Scripture. And these 15 psalms are all grouped together and have the same inscription, a song of ascent. It's a small collection of choruses that the, the Jews would sing as they were making their journey up to Jerusalem for the annual feast and the tribes would do this three times a year. Psalm 133 is the second to the last of these, with Psalm 134 ending the group. Now, I've entitled the message this morning, Blessings of Unity, Blessings of Unity, with the hope that as we study this song, we will each leave here today with a a greater recognition, a greater appreciation, even love for what we have here together at Grace Life Church. But before we read these three verses, I want you to imagine with me what, you would, what would you say to, to someone from the outside about what it looks like inside Grace Life? If you were inviting someone to attend church on a Sunday and they have no prior experience, no real understanding of what would take place, how would you describe what we have here. Maybe how have you described what we have here? What words come to mind? A warm welcome? We certainly have that. Sweet fellowship? Often we have to describe we're a Bible church, right? We're non-denominational. We're not holding to a denomination. We preach, we teach, we believe the Bible. Well, whether it's the service or Sunday school classes, uh, Uh, ministries throughout the week, everything and anything should fall under one heading. And that heading is unity. Unity. There is something special. There's uh, something spiritual, even supernatural that's taking place in here. And this psalm has something to say about that. Blessings abound in the warmth and in the sweetness of our unity here. And we don't want to take that for granted. This is not a social club, and it's also why you can't truly and genuinely experience it in front of your TV at home. We can't call that church. We just can't. Let me say it this way. Look, my wife does the grocery shopping in our family, and with good reason. If you send me, it's not the same. It's certainly not grocery shopping. My shopping is selfish. Now, my girls get excited when I go grocery shopping. But it's not selfless. I'm looking like Indiana Jones for those special items that we never, ever get. Last time, I found, get this, I found 
Cheetos mac and cheese. That's miraculous. Cheetos and mac and cheese together. Okay, here's one more. Did you know that Dunkin' Donuts make cereal? They make cereal. And we found a flavor, mocha latte. Now you're taking notes. You're writing it down. I want to pick that up. Seriously, I'm, I'm thankful uh, for a Proverbs 30 wife who is wise with what our family needs. She does the grocery shopping. What I do is something altogether different. But in the same vein, we need to be careful what we decide to call church. Let's get this out of the way early. The unity we are referring to and what is praised in this psalm and its original context here pertains to the people of God valuing their experience together. With that said, there are many ways we can, we can still learn, we can worship, we can praise and, and pray privately, but that is not unity. And we'll define the word unity here in a moment. But first, let's read Psalm 133. Let's look at these three verses together. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Before we begin to deep dive into the subject of unity. Did you notice the first word that's there? Of course you did. It's behold. Behold. It's used only twice in the book of Psalms, and the next psalm is the other psalm that uses it, Psalm 134. And it's calling attention to what is about to be shared. In a sense, it's saying, behold, all need to see this. You need to see what a blessed thing this is that I'm about to share with you. And so it demands our attention. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Brothers, or even brethren, it's used in the uh, widest sense. Brothers and sisters, a group that lives together, much like a family, a kind of family in unity. And that's Grace Life. We have a common father with a capital F and are children of the same household. We basically live in the proximity of each other. We have a responsibility for one another. We're close-knit. We're the same tribe. There is a family-like nature in our journey. We are in this together. Community is also a good word. Community because it has that word unity in it. A spiritual community, perhaps. But that's not strong enough either. Let me give you the definition of unity here as the emphasis is on dwelling together. The definition I would use here is oneness of heart. If you're taking notes this morning and not just for the Dunkin' Donuts cereal, oneness of heart. Oneness is the acceptance of the same truth in the same sense. The acceptance of the same truth in the same sense. It's the same creed, but it cannot be just in a a formal sense of agreeing to the same doctrine and dogma, it must involve the heart, oneness of heart. You could even call it a a common affection or love. And this love at its best is of Christ. It's in Christ, and certainly it's for Christ. I know we could wordsmith this even more for sure, but instead of laboring over an exact definition, let's, let's start with a reminder of what is the supreme 
example of this unity. We were singing about it this morning. Our triune God, the Trinity. True unity is a reflection of God. It's embodied in the Trinity. I mean, think about it. There is there's one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit, and yet they are unifying in the midst of their diversity. The unity of God in three persons, it entails a, a perfect, absolute agreement. It's a, a spiritual union. It's not some organic or, or organizational alliance. Therefore, the unity of the Godhead is the model for the unity all Christians are to possess, and specifically here for us here at Grace Life. If I can say it this way, the unity we are seeking to define, it hinges on our union with Christ. Ephesians 5.30 says, we are members of his body. Romans 12.5, we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually we're members of one another. And so basically, our birthright as believers is unity. If you've placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are born again. You are in Christ. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And your birthright as a believer, it's unity. Because when we are glorified, when that day comes, when we will see him as he really is, we're going to experience perfect unity. Think about that. Perfect unity. And so we wait. But even while we await that day, we already enjoy a tremendous amount of unity. And that's what I want to share with you from the text of Psalm 133. Really four benefits of unity. Four benefits of unity. Four benefits of it. I say it because look at verses 2 and 3. They start out with, it is like the precious oil. It is like the dew of Hermon. That it that it's referring to is dwelling together, in verse 1 there, in unity. And first here, David says that dwelling together in unity is good. Dwelling together in unity is good. Behold, how good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Unity is good, quite obviously, because it reflects God's heart. Unity is one of the finest virtues when it echoes the heart of his word and his purposes. The Jews were going to worship with God's people in Jerusalem, and that was not only commanded by God, it was good for their spiritual well-being. You see the application here? It is the gathering of God's people together in the local church. And the psalmist describes that first benefit as good. Good. Well, what does, what does good mean? In the Bible, good's a reflection of God's character. It emphasizes the nature of such harmony as seen in the Trinity. It is and in and of itself, it's good. For it to be good means it's excellent. It's uh, worthy. Even rewarding. And you know, the benefit is good because the benefactor is good. Unity is a gift of grace. I'm jumping ahead here, but notice a phrase that is repeated in this psalm. It's three times 
uh, these benefits are illustrated as coming down upon. Do you see that? In verse 2, coming down, uh, coming down upon the beard, coming down upon the edge, coming down in verse 3 upon the mountains. Three times these benefits are illustrated as that. And that's because as James 1 tells us, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So unity is a good gift from a good God. And unity is one of the central promises of the New Covenant in the New Testament. Jeremiah in the Old Testament states this. Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-nine: I will give them one heart and one way for their own good and the good of their children after them. It is good. It's unity. But then there's that word, pleasant. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And so second here, dwelling together in unity, in unity is pleasant. Pleasant. It's a word that can be translated as uh, sweet or delightful. Definitely an experiential word is dwelling together is not only inherently good, but it is delightfully pleasant. In fact, the communion of the saints is the second blessing in heaven to that of communion with God. And we understand the difference between things being good and pleasant, right? That something can be good, but it's not pleasant. For example, exercise, right? Exercise, physical exercise is good for you. At least that's what they say. It's good for you. But let's not kid ourselves. It isn't always pleasant. Sometimes it's really ugly, really hard. And we understand that something can be pleasant and not good. Like frappes, McDonald's frappes. I'm an addict. I love McDonald's frappes there. Now you know. But there is no way that there is anything good in that drink. It is liquid sugar. If you've had it, you know what I'm talking about. Way too much sugar in a drink. So it is easy for us to understand that there are things that are good and not pleasant and things that are pleasant and not good. But unity, true spiritual unity is both good and pleasant. And this brings us to verse 2, the first of two illustrations, two similes here. And it may seem a bit strange as we begin this, but stay with me. This will be edifying. Check out verse 2. Verse 2 again here, it, and the subject is still unity, it equals brothers dwelling together, is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, the the precious oil here refers to something very specific, very uh, unique. That was the anointing oil that was prepared for the tabernacle and set aside to anoint the priests and the sacrificial uh, furnishings. And why it's so special in part is because it was made from a recipe. It's not a secret one. It's, it's actually God-given. If you'll turn with me to Exodus 30, Exodus 30, you're going to see this special sacred recipe. It's found in Exodus 30. And I, I want you to see this. It is recorded in Exodus 30, verses uh, 22 to 25. We're going to look at a recipe this morning. We're going to get a little Martha here. 
Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and of fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. By the way, I never thought I'd be reading this passage in, in a sermon, but it's important here. You shall make from these a holy anointing oil, a fragrant mixture of ointments, the work of a perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. That's a lot of anointing oil, by the way. It's about a half, about a gallon and a half, a gallon and a half. And the Lord goes on to instruct Moses to anoint all the sacred instruments that are in the tabernacle, as well as Aaron. Look at verse 29. You shall also consecrate them so that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve as priests to me. Furthermore, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Verse 33. Whoever mixes any like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. This reminds me of Mary in John 12 when she took a whole pound of expensive ointment. You remember this made from pure nard and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And it said that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And the anointing oil we just read about was also highly fragrant with a very pleasing smell. It was unique. It was set apart. That's what holy means, to set apart. It was holy. This oil was such an important symbol of holiness that anything it touched among the things it was meant to touch was, as a result, deemed to be holy. And anything it touched wrongly was fit only for destruction. It's because the oil belonged to the Lord. It was his recipe, and it had just one sacred purpose, to sanctify, to set apart. Again, to make holy the instruments of worship and sacrifice. So when our psalm compares unity to the oil running through Aaron's beard and down to the edge of his robe, the point is being made that unity has a sanctifying effect. And that's number three. Dwelling together in unity is sanctifying. Sanctifying. Back to our psalm, Psalm 133. By the way, I don't know if you thought about this, but the the psalm is over 3,000 years old, and it's in our possession. How glorious is that? And as this psalm describes the dripping down of, of the sacred and fragrant oil onto the priest's beard, and on to the, the priest's garments. Did you notice who is mentioned by name? Someone's mentioned by name. It says, even Aaron's beard. He was the first priest in a line of Aaronic priests. He, he, he was the very first. And only the sons of Aaron would be able to serve as priests. The mention of Aaron adds some serious weight to this picture of unity. To know that every generation that followed was set apart in the same way? 
to minister in the temple to the, to the people of Israel before Yahweh? So do you see the, the sanctifying effect of the oil that it matches the sanctifying effect of our unity here together today? People, by God, are set apart and then set together. We are set apart and then set together. A people that have God's blessings upon them. Again, sent down, coming down, coming down, coming down from above. Unity is a gift from God. So it only makes sense that it would be set apart. It would be sanctifying, holy. Dwelling together in unity is good. It is pleasant. It is sanctifying. And fourth here, dwelling together in unity is refreshing. It's refreshing. Well, there's a second portrait here in verse 3. Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion. This is another liquid illustration for us. Dew, we're familiar with dew, droplets of water that appear on grass and on surfaces in the morning or possibly in the evening due to condensation. Thank you, Google. David writes that true spiritual union is like water droplets from a particular place, Mount Hermon, falling on another mountain, Mount Zion. What do you call these water droplets on a high peak? Well, it's Mountain Dew. I know. It's a terrible soda and I couldn't resist. Okay. So, Hermon is the highest peak in Israel. It's 9,232 feet above sea level, over 9,000 feet. And it's found in the northern region, and it's separated by Zion by about 100 miles. And Mount Zion is so much smaller, almost a hill really, 2,846 feet. So, you've got roughly 9,000 feet and 3,000 feet separated by 100 miles. But Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is. It's where the, the temple is located. And that dew is refreshing, as needful as rain, it's supporting life. But wait, the comparison of Hermon and Zion in verse 3 is what is so important. Mount Zion has uh, massive snow caps, lush forests, it has flowing springs, and then you compare that with a dry and barren Zion. So to receive anything from, from Hermon, let alone the dew, it would be refreshing. You might not be able to see it, but even the air, if you were to breathe it in, it would be different. One commentator writes, it refreshes the thirsty ground and quickens vegetation, falling gently on our spirits, helping to revive falling, failing strength and refresh parched places. I should point out that this picture that's been given is not to be taken literally. Start looking at commentary, start looking online. You'll find silly debates actually exist over whether the dew could reach over 100 miles and hit the smaller mountain. I love the NIV's translation. I think it says it best. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Yes, dwelling together in unity is refreshing. Have you ever missed a Sunday morning or 
a Wednesday evening or any other ministry event and thought, I almost missed that. You ever thought that? Quite some time ago, years ago, I was commuting back and forth to Harrisburg about an hour each way for work. And on Wednesday nights, we felt it was important as a family to be there together. And so I would leave work as quick as I could. We would drive back and Missy would have the car basically running. I'd get out of one car, get in the passenger seat of the other car. She'd strap the kids in their car seats, probably strap me in too, honestly, and basically give me a food tray (laughs) and we would drive to church. Now, if you had told me, hey, why don't you just stay home and take a nap? Why don't you just put the TV on? Why don't you just relax? Sounds really good, doesn't it? Sounds really good. But I can't tell you, I can tell you a number of times coming back that evening, I would look at my wife and say, I almost missed it. Because nothing refreshes like that unity. I almost missed that. The refreshing dew of unity. But this is not something we do in isolation. Back up to verse 1. As brothers, as brethren, brothers and sisters, people of God, we understand that the requirement in order for these blessings to occur is plurality. In in other words, you will not understand the inherent goodness of this drawing together. And you will not understand the subjective experience, the sweetness of this unity, which is pleasant. Nor will you understand the sanctifying and the, the refreshing effects if you try to live your spiritual life in isolation. Let me warn you, I'm going to step on some toes this morning. You know, the pandemic has produced... Some of this, we've seen it. There, there are people that are not here today for long periods of time because, I mean, just to be honest with you, a Sunday morning in my jammies with a side of bacon watching a TV sermon sometimes sounds good, doesn't it? But look what you would miss. I, I can see this with Sunday school. Sometimes the service ends and it's like a fire drill and, and people are running out the door. Now, look, there are special occasions. There are certain events. Please don't start sending notes and complaining. I wanted to say to you almost all the time I receive, but one of the, the most, I would say this is the most, uh, the greatest complaint that I, I receive as one of your pastors when uh, someone's not here very long. And it is that they do not feel connected to anyone in the church. And I, I wanted to say almost, almost every time it's this. No, it's every time. It's every time I end up saying to that individual or individuals, you need to be here. You, 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 you're missing it. You, you can't just even come here and walk in and sit down and then leave. You have to interact you have to invest. You have to connect. It's not done in isolation. Don't push it off on everyone else first. This is a, we just described it, a warm church. Oh yeah, it's people. Best part about the church is the people. Worst part about the church is the, the people. We're all sinners together. But be careful. Be careful thinking that way. You have to invest 
This psalm is not only noting here for us a number of blessings, but it's, it's calling us to routinely practice the joy of fellowship. The joy of fellowship. These pilgrims, Jews on a journey to Jerusalem, they would sing this psalm as a reminder of the benefits. I mean, they were literally thinking about how blessed they are and being reminded to continue their practices of unity. For them not to rehearse what they didn't like, not to complain about their circumstances, but to be reminded that there is no greater place on the planet, especially on a Sunday morning, than in the local church. There is nothing as good. There is nothing as pleasant, sanctifying, or refreshing as dwelling together. Together. Unity. And so we need to practice it. We need to be practicing it. Well, let's look at some of the practices of unity, some ways we can work together to experience these blessings of unity, practices of unity. I'm going to give you three Ps this morning, but you know there's many more. We could create many more out of this. Three Ps. And number one here, the first one is to pursue it, to pursue unity. The question's not whether or not you want unity, but rather are you willing to pursue it? It takes effort. Attendance, as we've already discussed, is, is essential here. Look back over the past few months and ask yourself, am I engaged in the life of the church? Could it be said of you that you are pursuing it? Is grace life your church? Do you love what Christ died for? That's the church. It speaks of our priorities, doesn't it? How consistent is your attendance? Do you take advantage of the fellowship opportunities we provide here? Sunday school, picnics, grace groups, prayer meetings, men's and women's studies that go on and on and on. Look, I am not here to look at you and keep a little clipboard and track how you're doing in that. I'm just here from the word to challenge you. Are you pursuing unity? Are you pursuing it? Pursue unity. Are you actively pursuing others in the church to interact with? Basically, are you investing in relationships? I find it very interesting how we sometimes fall in the trap of describing our relationships with others in the church. What we will do is because we see them every single Sunday and we'll say, hey, good morning. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing okay. How are you doing? You're doing well. Well, sometimes we'll get in the trap of like, oh man, we are really close. No, you're not. No, you're not. I mean, it's a great step. I'm, I'm thrilled for that. We're thrilled about that. That's a step towards unity. But that's not investing in the relationship, right? I mean, have you prayed with them? Do you know what's going on in their lives? Do they know what's going on in your life? Have you spent any time together? That's why those fellowship opportunities are so important because we're creating venues where you can do that. There's a men's breakfast this Saturday morning. That's a great opportunity for men to do that, to do that. How amazing is that? You don't even have to, to try to schedule something with someone. You just got to show up on Saturday morning in your bulletin. So pursue unity in such a way that you are actually promoting it. Another way to say it would be to participate and then anticipate its blessings, the blessings of unity. 
Another practice of unity is to protect it. Number two here, to protect it. Protect unity. As Christians in the the local body of Christ, we are to recognize the value of this God-graced unity. If you value it, then you will protect it. You should protect it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And our unity is supernatural, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit is our bond. The Holy Spirit is the inner unifying force in this body, the body of Christ. And it can be one of peace when we walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. More on that in a moment. But let me here fire a warning shot. A warning for those who do not take seriously this unity and seek to undermine it. Beware of a critical spirit. We live in such an age right now. I know you agree with this. Everything is politicized. Hyper-politicized. And it's training us as a culture just to be overly critical. And then you add to that another layer of social media where everyone feels that they have an opportunity to rant and it almost becomes natural. And then what happens is we bring it into the church. If I'm honest here, your your pastors, the pandemic was a really tough time for both of us and our families because you couldn't please anybody. It's an extreme wickedness to undermine unity. Listen to God's word. Proverbs 6.19 says that it's one of seven things God hates with a holy passion. One who sows discord or strife among brothers. Proverbs 16.28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. In other words, someone who seems to think there's something compelling about causing division, who delights in setting brothers and sisters against one another is in grave Sin, the sins of deceit, slander, pride, and foolishness, these all come out of the one seeking to divide and devalue such unity. This is a serious heart attitude issue. And that's why we're to protect unity. Are you still in Psalm 133? One more look at this song. End of verse 3. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now, as believers in Christ, we know that one day this unity, as I've said earlier, is going to be a perfect one, a a perfect unity, a life forever, where God will be our light and we're going to enjoy him forever together. I like to say forever in a day, for all eternity. And since we have life forevermore with him and the people of God, We need to, we should work hard to enjoy unity with him and them now. Now. So we pursue unity and we protect it because we value it. It's that serious. You know how serious it is? Don read for us this morning in John 17, just like our Lord, we should pray for it. We should be praying for it. That's number three. Pray for it. Let me reiterate that that fellowship, true spiritual unity, it's the concern of this psalm. 
And, and this unity is also what Jesus prayed for. It's realized now in the new covenant. And as the spirit of God is poured out on all of God's people, all are made partakers. All are to be uh, participants. All united under the great high priest. And in John 17, he prayed for our perfect unity. Listen again to these verses, verses 21 to 23. This is John 17. This is Jesus. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, perfected in unity, so that, why? The world, we're a witness to the world, may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The unity we experience today, it's a fulfillment to the prayer of Jesus to his Father. And we should be praying for this unity here at Grace Life as well. We have this one thing in common that matters to every single one of us more than any other thing. You know what it is? It's one person. It's Christ. Christ. Look, if you've ever experienced strife, broken relationships, division, separation, friction, gossip, factions, opposition, divorce, hostility, discord, uh, slander, disunity, on and on and on and on and on, then you know how good and pleasant spiritual unity can be. Then you know. Pray for unity. Pray for unity. One final thought before we uh, move to communion this morning. I find it ironic that the author of Psalm 133 David would experience the complete opposite of what this text exalts, right? Think about the life of David. David's own house would be divided. His son was a rebel all his days, even to death. And as a consequence for David's own sin, a sword would never depart from his own house. But even so, David valued dwelling together in unity. And he penned a psalm, having pictured the, the uh, sanctifying oil and the refreshing dew and realizing the promise of life forever. May we do the same. Friends, don't take lightly the blessings of unity. Let's not do that. Let's pursue it. Let's protect it. And right now, let's pray for it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the many blessings received in this space and time. We are children of God only by the grace of God. We are a part of your body only by the sacrificial body of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We are a, a local church and and your fingerprints are all over this place. And we thank you for, oh, for your good and pleasant blessings of unity that we have here together.
this morning. Thank you for setting us apart, for refreshing us with each and every passing opportunity of ministry to one another. We know that church is not a building. It's not a building. It's a people. It's called out ones. And we thank you for the joy of our fellowship. As your word says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity. Oh, that we each would be challenged by your word to pursue it. Striving together for the good of one another. That we would each protect it, that we would guard the unity around the gospel. And that it would be done for your honor, not for ours, and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we make our way to the Lord's table. And we do so because it is what God has appointed for every Christian, every believer, to be gathered in community and and fellowship with the body of Christ and to be remembering the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the church was first birthed on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.42 tells us that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to prayer. And we are, too, to keep the cross central in our lives. In a setting where there is worship, where the word is ministered to you in preaching and teaching, where there's, because of the word, there's self-examination that's taking place in this period of time. There's even a confession of sin. This is a good opportunity. We do this once a month, and I personally look forward to it. It's like a reset button. I've said this to you many times, and I hope that's your practice too. This week, I knew communion was coming, not just because I'm leading it, but I knew it even in my behavior. It helped me to really in my prayer life to, to even work further to, to confess known sin, kind of reconnect, get, get right with God in, in those areas. It's an acknowledgement of the blood of Christ to forgive us of those sins. And so what we do here is we're going to read just a few verses. We'll read 23 through 26 in 1 Corinthians 11. And we remember what he's done. And then we rejoice until he comes again. And he is coming again. It could be today. Look with me, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup Also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is an opportunity for you again, if you are a true believer in Christ, to partake of the elements. I say elements, they're in the little cup before you. Many of you already grabbed them. I can hear you work in the plastic. But this is an opportunity for you to do that. So we'll do that 
on our own here, but together. And then the worship team will come up and lead us in a final song in our time of worship.